Luke chapter 20, verse 45. And while all the people were listening, he said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. For they out of their surplus put into the offering. But she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. And Father, we do thank you for this text. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to understand it and to apply it to our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I knew I was in trouble when I opened up and I started, you know, right after the second service ends, I start kind of going, what do I have next week? How stressful is my week going to be And trying to figure out? Sometimes they're easy texts to understand. Sometimes they're more difficult ones. At first glance, I looked at this and I'm like, man, that's all I have? I'm going to have a hard time like getting 15 minutes out of that. I'm like, well, maybe you set that up because you knew there was, there was such a long one. And so as I kind of read and looked it over, it seems so simple and straightforward. I then went to a commentary and there's a guy, Bach, who is like the, he, he's known as when it comes to the person that knows the gospel of Luke, Bach is the man. He spent his life writing a, a huge commentary on it. And the very first thing out of his mouth in his commentary was this. What Jesus is about to say requires reflection. And so when I hear something like that, it's like, okay, there's a, this is a piece of beef jerky that I need to chew on and think about and, and meditate over and ask myself, what is, what's going on here? Why is this important? And as I've looked at this passage, I'm gonna, like some of the keys in this passage, he warns the disciples about the scribes. And, and as I thought about that, I'm trying to give you guys a head start because I've been thinking about this all week and you guys are just coming into this cold and you have about you know, 30, 45 minutes or so, maybe an hour, who knows, to kind of take it in and then adjust to it. But he's warning the disciples the, the disciples, it's not a, he's not basically ripping on the scribes and like scolding them. He's warning them because he understands it's a very slippery slope. We start out with a passion for the Lord and it can very easily turn into religion over the course of the years and where, where we've departed from our first love. And he's warning them to, to be on guard, to protect yourself and I hear it all the time. I used to say it. You know, people say, well, I don't go to church because I don't, I don't like, I don't trust the churches. I don't respect the people. They're filled with hypocrites. And now that said, sometimes I can defend both sides. Now on, on one side of the coin is no, no Christian's perfect. None of us have attained perfection. There is not perfection in the churches. And so if a person is saying that the church is filled with a bunch of non-perfect people, that's not hypocrisy. That's just humanity. <laughs> that's, that's humanity with the goal. And we, we have 
our aims of what we want to be. Now, on the other hand, there are a bunch of people in religious circles that put on this big exterior front and they put on this big show with even though deep within they're not that person. And you hear scandal all the time in the church, fraud with money, fraud and uh, sexual conduct, fraud and just all sorts of abuses. And so now that's a different thing. That's that's pretending that you're one thing while while under the surface it's a big show. Now that's true hypocrisy and that's a problem. And I think that's what Jesus is addressing. And he wants, I think this whole text is leading towards you've got to trust in Christ and you have to continue trusting in him. Amen. And so the setting, I want to show a picture. I'm going to back up a little bit. Go to the next slide. This happens within the temple. Today in Israel, standing from the Mount of Olives, you look across to the, to the old city of Jerusalem, there's the wall that goes around the whole city. It's huge. There's the Temple Mount where there's a, a mosque right there on the spot of the location where today's story happened. The next slide, please. Um, this is a picture of the temple, the temple grounds uh, as it was in Jesus's day. It's huge. I, I, this, the smaller inner, the actual temple is the building on the inside it was about two two football fields long, and so it's a huge magnitude. Now, if we could go back to the first slide, we're going to zoom up on the end. This is the actual temple, the small building. Today's story, we see it happens in this area, which is the, the woman's court. It The woman's court does not mean that it was exclusively women in there. What it meant was women couldn't penetrate beyond that point. We look at this picture and we don't grasp the magnitude. Two football fields long. Um, some estimate that in the woman's courtyard, 6,000 people could fit. So it's huge. Um, the steps into the holiest of holies heading back up into there, like the men's court and beyond. But it's suspected that these two areas up here were like the treasury where people would place offerings. And so it would. Have, this is during the Passover. This place would have had its max capacity i don't know if they had a fire department at the time but firefighters normally like we just had our fire inspection and for like years they say you guys need to keep putting a max occupancy on your thing and i say okay but do you just want me to make up a number like i looked at the fire inspectors have no sense of humor like they think everything's just about to set on fire and i have a little bit more of like i like to mess around but I, have, I know I have to keep it in check when you're being inspected. And I'm like, well, you know, we really want to put up a max occupancy. But do we just make up the number? I go to half the buildings around the United States and I look at the number and I'm like, there's no way you could fit that many people. And he's like, no, OK, we'll take the measurements and we'll, we'll get back to you with a thing. Our max occupancy, 280. We, there's, yeah, there's no way. We're, that's the number. So I would have been good. I'm like, I would have probably put about 150, but that's neither here nor there. So I don't know how they gauged. I'm tired from soccer, so I might get more off-tangent off jokes here. But this place was packed. If, if that little courtyard could hold 6,000 people, the outer courtyard, I mean, it's huge. And it's the Passover. And everybody would have been there. It would have been loud and clanky and all kinds of people having their own conversations. 
And Jesus is their teaching in context. And last week he was confronted by the scribes. There were three sabotages against him where they confronted him on his authority. What authority was he there teaching? He responded with asking them a question. He simply, if they would, if they would answer his question, he would then tell them by what authority. They didn't do it. Jesus sort of trapped them. Then he told this parable about the vineyard and the slaves that came and were beaten by the people that were renting out the land. He then was, the scribes then thought, okay, well, he got us. We're angry. He's attacking us. So our plan is to send two guys in to act like they're righteous, to act like he's, they're followers of him. And they were going to ask a question about the coin. And Jesus answered that one masterfully. And then he went into the third one. What was the third one? The third one was the Sadducees came and they gave their big thing. They didn't believe in the resurrection. There was a, a lady. She had seven husbands. Everybody died, including her. None of them had kids. And they want to know who was going to be married to her at the end. And Jesus addresses them. And so as Jesus is talking throughout Luke, Luke tells us that Jesus taught as no other spiritual leader had ever taught. He taught with authority. He taught like he knew what he was talking about. Maybe because he was God and he wrote the Bible and he ordained the Bible. And so he, the Bible expresses his heart. And so he knows what it's talking about. And so you're not going to trip up God when it comes the author of the book. And so as he's teaching, the crowd is gathering. And so in verse 45, it says, while all the people were listening, this huge crowd has gathered around Jesus. We're told that he said to the disciples, so there's this huge crowd listening, but he stops addressing the huge huge crowd. He takes his 12 guys. And if we reflect on these 12 guys, these guys were not from the religious order. They had not made the cut to continue into rabbinic training. They went back to their businesses. They were, they were blue-collar guys, fishermen, tough fishermen, a tax collector who was hated by his own family, everybody. So these were a bunch of vagabonds. Like These were guys that were not in the religious elite. And Jesus addresses them. Beware of the scribes. And this beware is like to be on guard, to caution yourself. Watch your heart. It's a very slippery slope. As we walk with the Lord to to go from a person who is totally um, in the need of the Lord, where you're remorseful for your sin, where you realize your condemnation and your helplessness, and then you turn to him and trust in him. Jesus is saying from that point, as you walk with him, it's very easy for us to turn into the religious righteous, those that think we're better than everybody else. And so he says, beware of the scribes. See, I don't think Jesus is saying, hey, these guys are walking around with knives and they're going to hurt you and kill you. He's saying, beware of their attitude. Beware of becoming like them. He says, who like to walk around in their long robes. Now, in our culture, not many people ascribe to like, well, ascribe, that's a nice pun. I'll say (laughs) unintended. There's not many people who like, like just long over, man, there's like these sweet robes, but they cost a lot of money. I wish I could pick me up a robe and just, you know, you know, strut it around here. In fact, even so, like one of the fears of being a pastor, like as this started opening up, I'm like, there's no way I'm not going to a denomination where 
they make you strut around in a dress. Like, I'm not going to do it. Like, you know, there's, that's my Catholic back. I mean, you had to have a big garb and walk around. And I'm like, there's no way I want a robe like that. But in this day, like a robe, it was something that was expensive, dye that they, and they had money. And if you wore these robes, you would walk into a place and it's like, oh, that guy's somebody. That guy has wealth and resources and we've got to bow down to him and do what he wants because it could benefit us. And so he said, they like wearing those robes. They like wearing them because then when they walk into a place, the amount of respect that they get and, and the way people treat them, it's different than if they just walk in in shorts, teach t-shirts and a flip flops, you know, like they, they get a different sort of respect and they like that feeling. He goes on to say, and they love respectful greetings in the marketplaces. So when they go out into town and they're at Costco and they're at Vons and the various marketplaces, people come up to them and totally kiss up to them. Oh, Reverend so-and-so, it's so good to see you out here in public. Man, they just, yes, how are you doing? Like they walk around like they love that. He goes on and they and they love the chief seats in the synagogue. Now, in the synagogue, it was a tiny little room that you had. You had the back seats around like the three walls. But up front, there were some very important seats. And only very important people could sit up in those seats. And they loved those seats. They wanted to be there because it was all about them. And places of honor at banquets. We had a, uh, the Escondido every now, see, I really like the chaplaincy because I like the SWAT team guys. Like I like hanging out, being with the boys, the, the more bureaucratic chaplain stuff. I really don't like, like, I just don't, I don't do well with it. I was, you know, I come from like, I'm more of a blue collar when it comes to environments like that. I want to be with the guys on the street, but every now and again, in order to do that, I've got to do this other stuff. And in the Wednesday before Easter is always the, the chaplains host this breakfast, which I'm okay with breakfast because it was, that was a good day. The food was great at a Mexican restaurant. It was a big brunch. But we have everybody come in, and one of the people was the chief of police. And, you know, it was, there was this funny scene where he, one of the head chaplains says, hey, come sit at the head table. He's like, well, I'd really just rather sit, like, down here with the boys. And like, well, he didn't, that's my terminology, but he sat in like a seat out in the back corner. But it, we're like, oh, joking. I'm like, hey, that's kind of biblical, man. Like that you don't want to, you know, there's this big joke about it. Jesus tells that parable about, hey, take one of the worst seats because then if there's a spot by the head and you get asked to come up, that's a big deal. But if you go sit at the head right next to the, the person that's hosting, you say, excuse me, sir, but somebody else is coming. He's like, that's, that's insulting. So it's better for you to be a humble person. But these guys wanted to to have the best seat at the banquets. It was all about them. And then in verse 47, and they devour widows' houses. This is a great illustration of, you know, do we take the Bible literally? Yes, we do. So does literally mean literalistically? Like, are these guys going around the neighborhoods and like like Pac-Man eating these houses? No, no, this is literal. Like when you take the Bible literally, that means that there's room for allegory and all kinds of what he's saying is these guys being the religious leaders, they were going into widows homes and they were taking advantage of them 
uh, either with their resources or whatever. They were using their power position to take advantage of these women who are totally helpless in their culture to like protect themselves or do anything. They were crooks, is what he's saying. They're using their power to benefit themselves and they don't care who they hurt. You look at widows who are at their time, were like the very, on the very least protected category of people. And these guys that were on the very other end of the spectrum, they didn't care about hurting them or taking advantage of them for their own personal gain. And for appearance sake, they would offer long prayers that they would do these high lofty prayers that nobody knows what they're talking about. And the only reason that they were praying like that was for appearance sake, because it made them look so spiritual. And then the final thing that Jesus throws in this thing is these will receive greater condemnation. What I noticed about this, it doesn't say these will receive condemnation. It says these will receive greater condemnation, which, wait, that means that like there's condemnation doing for all people. But this category, there's like this extreme condemnation like coming to these guys. Now, before we get there, anytime there's condemnation towards pastors, it may not, you might not really, it might not, you know, radiate with you too much. But with me, it's kind of like, uh oh, like, what's this saying? How does this apply to me? How much of my height is on the line here? Like, how much trouble? Like, what am I talking about? And when I look at this, if you'll turn with me over to Hebrews, God puts over and over and over again when it comes to leaders that he's entrusted over his people under shepherds of Christ, there is severe warning given. In Hebrews chapter 13, this is the one. I'm not emphasizing the first half of this to you, but it's important for you to know. And I think that this should have reflect the heart of every pastor is the second part. And in Hebrews 13, chapter 17, or chapters 13, verse 17, it says, obey your leaders and submit to them. Okay, that's when you're like, hey, wait a minute. What's up with that? It's the second part I'm getting to. It says, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. And so the author of Hebrews says, hey, when you have your spiritual leaders over them, submit to them. Don't make their lives miserable. Like they're caring for you and a pastor should care for you. And I care for this church in a way, or I try to my aim. doesn't mean I'm always perfect, but I can tell you my imperfections probably better than any of you can because I want to honor the Lord. But it tells me that one day those that sit under my teaching and are consider the church that I'm at, they're like their pastor. I'm going to give an account for your souls. And so I really want you guys to understand what God wants. And the best way to do that is for you guys to be taught the word of God in the most like understandable way. Which explains why sometimes I might take an hour and 15 minutes like last week to kind of go through that. But it says, because they're going to, where is it? They are, uh, for they keep watch over your souls as those will give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. And I really, like, I, lo- I love meeting with other pastors because pastors can complain about a lot of stuff. 
And I'm just like, no, man, like, like you guys give me great joy. It's like, it's like, especially as I'm entering into the five year mark of the restart. And it's just really like, like my biggest criticism against myself and like managing my time. It's not like there's demands on the church. And I'm so I'm thankful to be here and you guys make it joyful for me to serve. And if you'll turn to the next book, the next big warning, James, (laughs) James chapter three. And there's a warning given to those that want to that enter into the ministry. We're told that it's good to desire to become an elder. But James gives a warning. This is Jesus's little brother. And he says, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. Now, James is totally from a from a Hebrew perspective to the Jewish people. And, and would apply directly to what Jesus is saying back in Luke chapter 20. And these will receive a greater condemnation. This, this warning, like Jesus says all this stuff. And as I'm reading this story, I'm like, why does Luke just kind of fly over this story so quickly? And, and as we go to the next section, it, it connects. But I'm asking, I'm like, man, this sounds familiar. And if we'll go back to Luke chapter 12, Luke's already expanded on this, and it's worth our going back to, to understand the why is this warning given? What is the issue that Jesus is talking about? So in Luke chapter 12, verse 1, we read, Under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together, that they were stepping on one another. So something happened. Jesus has this huge crowds of people... Thousands of people are coming to hear his teaching. They're like stepping on one another, trying to get to him. In this setting, we say he's Luke says that he began saying to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. The Pharisees and the scribes were tied to one another, which is hypocrisy. And when Jesus says this, this hypocrisy, this two-sided duplicity, this this was Jesus is fired up at this scene. And what were the circumstances? We have to go back to chapter 11, verse 37, which on my page, it's just up there. And it's this scene. I'm not going to read through everything, but Jesus was invited to lunch by a Pharisee. And Jesus went in and he sat down at the table. And before anybody else sat down, they were kind of taken aback because Jesus didn't wash. It says he didn't go through the ceremonial washing. Now, this isn't the washing of your hands. This literally in the Greek text, it says that Jesus didn't baptize himself, that there was this that they had created this order that before you sat down for a meal, you had to go through all of this stuff like religiously, this this teaching and we're not teaching, but but going through the ceremony of doing certain things to sit down to kind of clean the outside of you. And if you didn't do this, you would contaminate the whole table. And so as they're kind of like, uh oh, this guy, like this Jesus, we just invited him over. He didn't obey our rules, not from scripture, rules that they had made up in their interpretation of the scripture. What are we going to do? Like, like they can't really sit down, but Jesus immediately picks up on this and he starts to address them in verse 39. He said, now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside you are full of robbery and wickedness. 
And see, when I taught this text, I remember having to look for a picture of a Navy coffee cup. It's just like Google can't get you everything. I don't think very many Navy chiefs are like posting pictures on Google. But it's amazing. You can have a total white cup on the outside and the inside is just, I mean, looks black. And it's just coffee stained. And it's never been washed. When I was in the Navy, I saw a young guy thinking, like trying to get, like earn points with the chief, and he washed the cup, like scraped it out and cleaned it so it was meticulous. I'd never seen a chief so angry that he would ruin his cup, that he'd spent 20 years not washing to get to that point. And we look at it and we think, oh, that's nasty. It's clean on the outside, but on the inside, it's dirty. And Jesus is saying that they're just that way with their walk with the Lord. They have all of their outside looking pretty, but their inside is filthy. He goes to give them three woes or warnings. In verse 42, he says, but woe to you Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb. So he says, you do all of the religious, you give of your money, you give of all your possessions, and yet you disregard justice and the love of God. What Jesus is insinuating is that, you know, you do that stuff, but the spirit of the law is that, that God wants us to be people who love justice who and the love of God and the, that we should care for one another. But they, they're more concerned about how they look. And verse 43, the second, well, woe to you Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplace. Doesn't that sound familiar? So this is a constant complaint that they care about how they look before others. Verse 44, he gives a third, well, woe to you. For you are like concealed tombs and people who walk over them are unaware of it. See, we we miss this point. In their culture... If you were to walk over a tomb of a dead person, you would contaminate yourself. You would be unclean. And, and Jesus says that their lives, they think that they're teaching people and living their, way, their lives in a way that's pleasing to God. But in actuality, what they're doing is they're contaminating people and making people unclean by God because they're selling this religion, this, this system of works. And at this point... One of the scribes, or he refers to them as lawyers at this point in verse 45, which I love this. The scribes kind of speak up who are over the Pharisees. They were like the instructors and leaders over them. And he said, teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. Like, hey, 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 you've gone too far because it kind of sounds like the way you're condemning them. You might be condemning us. And so we're going to give you the opportunity to kind of press rewind, say you're sorry that you misspoke and you didn't meet it. But Jesus goes for it on them. Verse 46, he says, but woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. What are these burdens? They're the ones that came up with the list of do's and don'ts. They said, do this before you have lunch. You've got to go baptize yourself. You've got to say a certain prayer. You've got to do this and this and this and this. And if you don't do it, then you're condemned by God. But Jesus says, you come up with all these rules and you burden them. You weigh them down. You break their backs trying to be pleasing to God. And you yourselves don't even do it. He goes on to say in verse 47, woe to you for you 
build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. Go back to that slide of the of um, the the modern day Israel. So literally, when you get down to the base of this hill, I don't know if you can see it here, but there's this huge, big mausoleum type tomb. And I remember like being on a tour tour, and I'm like, "Hey, are there any like cool people buried here?" He's like, "Hey, you see that one? That's Zacharias, the prophet." I'm like, awesome. You know, okay, you can go back. There's a point here. He says, you build these big old, these big old grave sites and you pay homage to the, the prophets of old. But he says, but it was your fathers who killed them. Like he said last week when we studied that text, is you, you worship all the prophets and yet it was your fathers that killed them and you're just like them. You reject the people that God sent. And Jesus is telling them that here. Down to verse 52. He says, Woe to you lawyers, for you've taken away the key of knowledge. You yourselves did not enter, and you hindered those who were entering. So he says, listen, you guys have lost the whole heart of what the scriptures say. You've distorted them. You've taken away the keys of knowledge, of understanding who God is. God revealed his word to us. So that we would know who he is. And they locked up the keys and they didn't enter into this truth of knowing who God was and what God wanted. And not only that, people who are genuinely trying to seek God, they're standing at the door like linebackers and taking them out. And at this point, verse 53, it says when he left there, I don't think lunch ever happened. The scribes and the Pharisees began to be very hostile and to question him closely on many subjects and plotting against him to catch him in something that he might say. So the plot thickens here. And we're, you know, where we are now, it's getting close to his, his arrest and his crucifixion. And all of this is going to come to head their plan to try to get him. That's the context in verse 12 under these circumstances. So he's talking about their hypocrisy, their integrity of, and integrity is this, this phrase that seems to be popping up in my life this week, but integrity is like being honest with who you are on the inside and how you act so that you're, it doesn't matter if a bunch of you are around or none of you are around that I'm the same person. If I'm in this church alone, or if you're all here, because ultimately I stand before God and God in the privacy knows the condition of my heart. And it's him in which I have to be honest. And so I don't go through this big show of, of, of be, like pretending that I'm something I'm not. Because he ultimately knows. And he's doing a work in my life. And so then Jesus from here, he warns them. He's like, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. You put on this front, but that's not who your heart, what your heart is. Verse 2, but there is nothing covered up that will, be, will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Accordingly, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and that, and what you have whispered in the inner rooms will be proclaimed upon the housetops. See, when I, whenever I teach over something that I've already taught on, it's like I have all the stories kind of right there, so I, it's like kind of awesome going back because I know the stories. So when I teach on this one, I think of my friend that was a missionary in Uruguay. And there's just four guys in the Jeep. Do you guys remember the story? Some of you? Any of you? Oh, good. It's like a fresh story. Because I'm going to tell it anyhow, whether you remember it or not. 
So they're driving along in Uruguay. Three of the guys are kind of talking. They're saying that they're struggling with purity of thought because all of the women in Uruguay kind of go about their business topless. And so there's four missionaries kind of cruising along saying, man, how do you like guard your mind and your thoughts? Like we're trying to minister to them. And the guy's like, but some of them are like really good looking girls. And I like, I'm really finding myself struggling and I need to do something to like be in this context because they need Jesus and I need to figure out how to guard myself. Now they're having this heart to heart, but the driver is the religious one. And he starts saying, I can't believe you guys are this spiritually immature. It's like, I have absolutely no problem with keeping my mind pure. I just see them as lost women that need the Lord. And I don't even think of them in that manner. And like, so the three guys are like feeling horrible. They're like, man, maybe I'm not spirit. I mean, what am I even doing down here? Maybe I'm not like mature enough to be in the mission field and I need to go home. And as all of this is like unwinding in their guilt, they come to this river where to cross the river, the bridge is literally a tree that's been split in half. So there's two rails that the Jeep goes across and the driver enters the bridge And as they're about to go across, they notice that there's a girl down at the river doing her laundry, topless. Let's just say the Jeep did not make it over the bridge and ended up in the river because the driver, the religious one who said he had no struggles, (laughs) was a little distracted by this girl. And so as they swam out of the river, all three of these guys are like, if I ever hear you talk about how perfect you are, And how you don't struggle in this area is we're like confessing ourselves. Like, I'm going to punch you in the face. Like, you struggle just like us, but you're trying to make yourself out like you're holier than us. Like, you're rotten just like the rest of us. And you need to talk to us about it so that we can help each other with accountability. And Jesus says that everything that's hidden, like you might not drive a Jeep over over a bridge and your sin be confronted in that level. But Jesus says in the day, everything will be revealed. And so in our struggles, it's okay to let ourselves like be honest with one another that, you know, we haven't attained perfection. And if you're struggling, you can share. But but so much the culture in churches is we feel that when we come to church on Sundays, we've got to put on our best clothes. We've got to comb our hair right, which I'm all for, you know, giving God your best. But in a certain way, it's like we've got to go to church, kind of put on our mascara and put on our exterior and act like we got it all together and we're great people, which go into church. It's like that's always where the biggest fights happen if you're married. That's why Ann and I take separate cars, you know, <laughs> so we go to different times. But like I can't tell you how many times going to church like or doing something that you're stepping out. Like, that's where like fights happen. But we come here, and then you get to church, you'll be in the worst fight. Oh, I'm great. We're doing wonderful. Like Dolores called me, she's like, how are you doing today? I'm like, I'm doing good, fine. We always say fine. She's like, I'm struggling with this. I'm like, I love that honesty. That's See, this isn't a place where we try to put on our best for the sake of being fake. It's our place where we come for an encouragement and helping one another and rallying up. And I think at the heart of what Jesus is getting at, is we go down the road of religion because we become more concerned with trying to impress other people than we are trying to please him. And our fear of man 
becomes greater than our fear of God. And this is why Jesus goes on to say in verse 4, I say to you, my friends. Now, this is wonderful. Here is the Messiah speaking to his 12 in the midst. I say to you, my friends, don't be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he's killed, has authority to cast into hell. And yes, I tell you, fear him. He's pointing to God. Now, he's not necessarily like God is holy and God does cast into hell, like because of his holiness requires holiness. But he's not saying this to give like a good hellfire and brimstone sort of sermon. Because look what he goes on to say. He goes on to say, are not five sparrows sold for two cents? Yet not just one of them, yet not one of them is forgotten before God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. And so this issue of integrity or duplicity of religion, it's a trust issue with God. He's saying, trust me. You're good with me because I came and I died for you. I gave my life for you. I want you to be holy because I'm holy. He wants our lives to change, yes. But it's a progression. And if you've progressed a little farther in your walk with the Lord, like there's always stuff that he's doing that just changes. I seem way better today than I was 15 years ago by human standards. But according to God's standards, man, there's a whole bunch of my heart that's still dirty and he's still working out in me. And all it takes is for me to have to go to some like swimming event where I've got to like rip off my shirt. And it's like, hey, that dude's got a bunch of tattoos. I'm like, oh, yeah, that was me back then. You know, that was, you know, I wish I could take him away, but I can't. You know, it's just what it is. You know, last night at the soccer game, Kelly Kidder was there and she's like, dude, you need to roll up your sleeves and intimidate. I'm like, no, Kelly, I'm not. That's my old like, that's not what I'm going to do. But it's a reminder of me. Like to me of where I came from and to remind that anything, any work that's been done in my life, it's Jesus's grace alone that's accomplished it. And when we look, when, when he's giving this warning to the Pharisees, I think we can go back to, to Luke chapter 20. See, Jesus has already given this warning. And as he enters into the temple... As he enters into the temple, he gets these like three attacks by the Pharisees who are going for his jugular vein, trying to disprove who he is as the Christ. And he looks at them in verse 45, and he says to the disciples, beware of the scribes, and he lists all of his stuff. Luke doesn't unpack it here. The disciples have already heard Jesus' warning against the the scribes and their hypocrisy and their religious zeal. So they understood what he was saying. And Jesus is saying, listen, it's a slippery slope. And this isn't a text like for me to come and start bashing a whole bunch of religious people. Like the point of application ends with your very heart. And David, the man after God's own heart, yet was filled with all sorts of bad stuff. I think it's been said that he broke nine of the Ten Commandments in very major ways. And yet in Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24, what he writes, I think, is the key 
to why he was called the man after God's own heart. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. And I think that the point of this, I don't care if you've been a Christian for one week or 70 years. The issue remains the same. Search my heart, O God. Search my heart. I want to walk with you and you alone. Guard me. Because it's a super slippery slope. And Christianity does a great job of indoctrinating people so that they remove themselves from the world. That we lose touch with those who don't know Christ. And there's nothing sweeter than to me than like the brand new Christian in his rawest form. When you ask him, hey, do you mind praying for this meal as we sit down? And in their prayer, there's like profanity because that's just where they are. And like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to swear. I wasn't like, I'm like, no, no, no. That's you're just talking to God. Don't worry about trying to impress me. You're talking. He'll clean you up. He'll help you. And I just, I love it when there's Christians who even after many years are just transparent. They don't put on this big show. They say, oh, I'm really struggling in this area, you know. I'm like, man, that's so cool that you're saying that because our Christian culture tells us that, that you just bottle it up and you act like you got everything together and you just deal with it on your own. And if you're not dealing with it well, then you've got issues. <laughs> We've all got issues. And so Jesus is warning them. And as he's telling them, Mark makes the side, I don't exactly know because I wasn't there. But Mark at this point records that they kind of got up and that they changed locations in the, in the court of the, the, the women's court. So I don't know if they were like on these steps and Jesus got up and walked over to the other side of the steps. And it says that they, they got up and they sat down. Like, or like Jesus had seen the people giving money into the treasury. And they got up to where they were closer so that he could, he could kind of watch them. And in verse 21, it says, And he looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. First off in this, I, I want to immediately take away any sort of, this is not bashing on rich people. There's a lesson to be taught by this widow, and Jesus is not condemning the rich people for their giving. Now in this, from my study, what I could tell, I think there were 13 containers that were like steel containers they were designated for different things. There was like a free will. I'm probably using the wrong term, but it was just an offering out of your heart to God. And these are the containers. Now, this is before the days of electronic giving with credit card. There were not checks. There were not dollar bills. Did Anna wear it? Okay, I'm going to use her later. Okay, perfect. (laughs) Sweet. She showed up to the first service maybe for this. (laughs) But, um, But so they had coins, And so as you put them in, you'd enter the coins in there. You could hear the sound and a trained ear could tell, oh, that much money went in. So a rich guy that had a bunch of big, heavy coins, he was like sitting there like clunk, 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 the big ones. And then if somebody kind of went in with two small coins, you're tink. That's all you got. You know, so it was just like a public sort of thing. And so. So he looks up and he sees the rich. There's, there's multiple people 
entering that are wealthy. They're putting their gifts into the treasury. It would have been loud. He's looking at them, the setting. And then he saw a poor widow putting in two small, small copper coins. The widow's mite. Two of these combined would make, in today's economy, a quarter of a penny was their net worth combined. So a quarter of a penny's worth, she drops in. Anna is where, when I went to Israel, they sell these widows. You can now buy a widow's mite. Well, a, so an eighth of a penny's worth, you could buy it for about 80 bucks. It's like, you know, inflation. So Anna's wearing, so it's a little tiny, thick, brown, blackish coin modeling back there. It's so small, you can barely see it. I saw him like, oh, that's really cool. I got to buy one of those. How much? Penny? I guess, yeah, that's funny. I get that joke all the time. You know, and he gave me the real price. I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll, pay, I'll pay, bring that back. And so this lady goes up with her two little coins. She's poor and she drops them in. That's the scene. Now, from that scene, as Jesus looks up and he's watching this, I imagine that as he looks up and he looks over there, this whole crowd, I imagine, is directing their attention over there. They're, they're hanging on to every word. Remember, the end of um, chapter 19, verse 48 says, all the people were hanging on to every word that he said. These crowds were just consuming what Jesus was saying. And now he gives this teaching, this warning about the scribes. And then all of a sudden he looks up or he gets up and he moves, according to Mark, and he sits down. And then he looks up and he looks over there everybody's like turns their head like ping pong and starts looking. What's he about to say? And he said in verse three, truly, I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. Start scratching your head. How, how did she possibly put more? We could hear the little tink of two widow's mites, uh, not even a penny in today's standard. And there were many. He saw the rich. It wasn't just one rich guy. It was many, like everybody else. I don't think it was like extraordinarily rich people. It was just everybody else compared to her was rich. And they're throwing in all their coinage. And it's loud. And you can hear the gifts that they're giving. And it's not bad. And he's not, he's not condescending them. He's about to teach an important principle. And they're scratching their head like, how did she give more than all of the rest of them? She can't even give a penny. She's not worth two cents. Verse four, he says, for they out of all of their surplus put into the offering, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. And then verse five totally transitions for the rest of the chapter. He starts talking about prophetic events, about the temple and its destruction. And so I'm looking at this. There's not much. And I'm reminded of Bach's statement when he said, what Jesus is about to say requires reflection. Like there's, it's profound, but there's not much there. It kind of forces you to think about it, to ponder it. What's he saying? Well, first he said that when they give, they could have given a significant amount of money, but it's out of their surplus. Like, they barely felt what they gave. They could have given hundreds upon hundreds of dollars, which isn't bad. That's a good thing. But it didn't require that much faith for them to even give. But for her, you get the feeling that all she had were these two widow's mites. 
This is how she was going to pay her rent. This is how she was going to eat. This is how she's going to live. And she puts it all in the offering. He says she put in all that she had to live on. And so we see that the, the, the measuring tool that Jesus uses in giving isn't by quantity. It's, it's by sacrifice. And she sacrificed all that she had. And it shows this total trust and resilience upon the Lord. Okay, Lord, I, I don't know how I'm going to make it back to where I came from. I don't know how I'm going to do this. But you're good and I give it all to you. It's a lot to consider. Like, Lord, how much, do I, how, much, how much do I give to you? Like, not even just resources like, or, or money. But this little phrase that, that, you know, I've kind of, I don't have dyslexia, but I, you know, I let, maybe sometimes I flip stuff. But this, she put in all. And I keep hearing, she's all in with God. Like, she's just given him everything. And on the Wednesday or Thursday night before Easter, like Good Friday, like that, like some, I think it was Thursday, there's this young couple. He's a Marine. They've been married for like a year. God's doing like really big stuff in their life. And, and I got an email from the wife probably like a month ago. And she said, you know what, we're really kind of struggling. And and she said, you know what, we're really rest. Like, I'm really struggling because my husband, he's, he's convinced that he really wants to just, like, give God, like, all of our money. And I'm struggling with this. Like, like I, I love his zeal, and I, but I, like, want to, like, have a house someday. And I want to, like, you know, and, and, and I want to I live for the Lord. But I also, there are things that I want to plan for. I mean, this is like a 21-year-old young lady who's been married a year. And she said, you know, I thought like, I just wanted to to ask you what your thoughts were about this. And it was way more articulate than what I just said. And so I was really busy and I said, okay, I'm going to like include Anna into this conversation and I'm going to let Anna respond because Anna is way more like the husband, like in our course of marriage, she like was really, you know, like when she was a young lady, Anna had said she wanted to make a vow of poverty and wanted to like give everything and so this has been an issue like that I've like God's worked in my life. So I kind of identified with the wife and I'm like, now I'm going to let Anna respond to you. And in a couple days I'll get back. And so then I like, you know, like by the end of the night, I see Anna's response and she's like totally making the case for the husband. And I was like, oh man, this poor girl just got blown away by Anna's response. And I like responded. I kind of gave my two cents and I said, well, from what I see it, like I'm, I'm, I told you I was going to release Anna on you. And like, this has kind of been my struggle is like, it's a trust issue. And so seeing your husband who's getting close to his time to getting out of the military, the military does a great job of like suckering people in because how are you going to make it? It's a bad economy. We give you a hundred percent health insurance where you get paid every two weeks, whether you deserve it or not and full retirement in 20 years. And so it was a struggle for me getting out at like 12 years. Like, how am I going to make it? How am I going to survive? Can I do it? And it was a total trust issue with God. And so I told him, like, well, maybe he's kind of going through this, um, this period in his life where he's concerned about, you know, he really wants to trust God and this is a way to condition. And so we both talked. And so we all kind of had this dialogue and I didn't hear from them. 
And I said, well, the most important thing in all of this, I think that you two need to have unity, like that you both, whatever you do, you need to kind of do together. And so then it was like a month after that, I had it, like there was no more of the conversation. There was like, thank you. And I was like, oh, I think we maybe doused him with the fire hose. And then I get a call from the husband, like the Wednesday or Thursday, it was like 10 o'clock at night. And he's like, we're going to do it. We're giving away like all of our money. Like we're, we're doing it. And I'm like, now I'm like, hold on, buddy. What's your wife think about this? She's like, she wrote the check. And I'm like, and, and he's like, well, we've been praying and we want to give the money to Valley Baptist church because God's doing stuff there. And they live in Oceanside. They don't go to church here. And we want to give it to your church because God's doing stuff. And I'm like, dude, brother, you just like, I don't know how much money you gave, but I think you just funded our missionaries to go to Romania, like in large part. And he's like, oh, awesome. And so he's like, but I got to come over right now. Because I've got to get rid of it. Because it's like, I feel like it's God's money. Like, I've given it. And it's like 10 o'clock. And I'm like, yeah, come on over, man. So he came on over. And, like, so he was, his plan was just to drop off the check. But it was like 1 in the morning when he was saying goodbye. And during that, that conversation, Ann and I started talking about the good old days, you know? Well, we live in the good old days, Solomon says. Like, this is the good old days right now. But we started telling our stories about, like, our things that we'd done that were very similar. We'd stepped out by faith. And just now that we're down the road, like, when you're stepping out by faith, you don't know what God's doing. He's, like, cultivating your heart. And we started telling of all of our stories, remembering when we were like them and, and making these sacrifices and stepping out by faith and just how faithful God's been. And really, it was super encouraging for me to see this young couple. I'm like, guys, if this is your biggest struggle, I wish every married couple that this is the kind of issue I was dealing with. And it was just exciting that that God had stirred up in their heart and they wanted to step out by faith and just give them everything. Like, not just money, but their lives. And money is such a tangible aspect to who we are as beings. And so they just wanted to live for him and to trust him and to know that he would care for him. And that's how I am in my life. And when I see this, this widow, that's the point I think Jesus is making. Like, don't worry about the audience of people around you. Worry about him. And God owns everything that you have. Every piece of clothing, every penny that's in your bank account, every vehicle you own, every house that you have, everything is his. He's blessed you with it, and he can take it away in a split second, I guarantee you. It's not ours. We're just managers that are entrusted with it. And he wants us to understand that, that we trust him and we live for him because he's got the whole world in his hands. Every little children, whatever that's wrong, that's all I know is, you know, the whole world. What God wants, search my heart, oh God. There's this warning of hypocrisy. And for us as a church, like I've got to really guard myself and to guard us. Because God's done a good work here. Like it's been an exciting ride. But I don't think God wants us to be looking in the rearview mirror. Like it's nice to kind of say, oh man, God's been really good. Like he's really kind of like this church that was about to five years ago was literally going to close down the doors and sell this. This could have turned into like an, a 7-Eleven in Valley Center or something. You know, who knows? 
But God doesn't want us looking in our rearview mirror and getting comfortable saying, oh, look what we've done, look what we've done. He cares about right now. No, we need you, Lord. We need you. We need to trust on you. It's about reaching our community, doing a work in our hearts, living for you. There's that missionary. Her name was Isabel Kuhn. She was a Canadian missionary to China, and she said something describing missionary life or living for the Lord that I think so taught, like this illustration that I think is so good about hypocrisy and trying to be people of integrity. She said, she, telling like a new missionary person that arrived in China, she told the person, when you get to China, all of the scum in your nature will rise to the top. So as we start living for the Lord, man, stuff is just going to surface up. And she went on to say that our inclination, or somebody said, I have no idea who said it, but said that we as Christians, what we want to do is to take one of those beach balls, you know, you blow up that are all different colors, and we're in a swimming pool, and we want to hold it underwater. And the more stuff that comes up, we want to kind of push it down because we have this image. And then eventually you just can't hold it down and it explodes all over you. We come here not because we're perfect. We come here because we want to live for the Lord. First John tells us, 8 and 9, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us all our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. In the SEAL teams, you're trained that if you're in a firefight and you take contact, meaning that somebody starts shooting back at you and you have to fight to defend yourselves and you begin this egress to get out of the firefight, you get to a spot that's safe and immediately you rally up. You form a circle maintaining the 360-degree um, protection and then the head guy and the radio man go to the center of that circle. And nobody speaks. And it happens in like 30 seconds. The officer goes to each person. They give them the I'm okay. And I, however many magazines they have left. Or if they're hurt and they need immediate medical attention. That they'll work everything out. And as this happens. If a guy says I'm, you know, I'm out of ammunition. He'll go to somebody that has more magazines. And he'll flip flop it to balance it out. He'll get everybody situated, and then he'll go on to the fight. See, that's what church is to me. This, this isn't a day where we come and we put on our, our, our Sunday best, and we act like we have it all together. This is our rally point. This is why, like, midweek Bible studies are so important, that, you know, we come together. No, I'm really struggling. I need prayer. Can you, can you just pray for me because I'm struggling here? Or I need help with this. We rally up, we patch each other up, we pray for one another, and then we go out to the world. We go back to the fight. And the other thing is, are you all in? Are you all in? Maybe one point in your life you said, Lord, you got everything in my heart. But then as you grow, you mature, you kind of stray for the Lord. We need to stay on track. And I asked Rick as I was studying this week if we could close with a song. It, Matt Redman wrote this song. Matt Redman is like, he is, there are, there are individuals that are raised up in a generation that write a lot of songs. I think like Chris Tomlin is probably the next one after Matt Redman. But Matt Redman wrote a bunch of worship songs that we sing. And I asked Rick if we could, at the, at the end of today, that we would sing this song. And this song encapsulates like, like the heart of this message. 
and it says, what's the name of it? The Heart of Worship. I, I forget the exact story, but Matt Redman was writing songs and worshiping and doing stuff. And he said, I'm done writing songs. I'm done singing. There's going to be no, no more. I need to like fast and take time away from the Lord. And then after like, I think it was like a month or six months, six months later, this is the song that came to him. And it's like, the words are powerful. I should have written them down, but it's, it's more than a song. It's, we're about to go through, okay, I'm coming back to the heart. Hey, this is great. Why didn't I think of that? (laughs) I would have handwritten them out, you know, (laughs) I'm like, okay. And it's all about you, all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it. When it's all about you, all about you, Jesus. Is that it? When the music fades and all is stripped away, and I simply come longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart, I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within through the way things appear, you're looking into my heart. King of endless worth, no one could express how much you deserve, though I'm weak and poor. All I have is yours every single breath. Is that it? I'm coming back to the heart of worship. So that's this song. I mean, it's powerful, simple. There's not a whole lot of words, but the essence is everything is God's. And we try to make it ours. And so my prayer is that we, as we end today and we sing this song, that we're not just singing songs. God's going to hold us accountable for the things that come out of our mouth. And when we sing these words, we're not just singing a song like we're cruising down the road. We're singing this to the Lord. And so, Father, we come before you and we thank you for this day. Father, we humble ourselves before you and we confess, Lord, our tendency, Lord, to desire to get onto that slippery road. Lord, you told us to beware of the scribes and, and Lord, the, the religious who do things, Lord, that think that they earn favor with you for doing them. Father, I pray that you would help us to find that balance in our hearts, Lord, for we know that you have expectations of us and how we live our lives matter. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to to truly lean upon you, to rest in you, to find that balance of, of totally trusting you and leaning upon you exclusively, Lord, and, and knowing that as you mature us, as you work out things in our life, Lord, help us to realize that it's by grace alone that the work is done. Lord, help us not to be judgmental people. Lord, help us to see people through your eyes. Father, I would pray that you would increase our passion for you, that we would be passionate, that we would love you, that we would long to be in your word and to learn um, not just about you, but to come to know you, Lord. You're our savior, our redeemer, our friend, our provider. We thank you, Lord. You are good. And we pray that this song would be a prayer from our hearts to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.